Welcome to Founders Focus, a podcast made for founders by founders. I'm Scott Case, CEO and co-founder of Upside, and we created Founders Focus to share free resources and actionable advice. Together, we're building a community for business leaders, entrepreneurs, and founders to come together to tackle today's challenges. This podcast is powered by the awesome team at Upside. With that, I want to welcome our co-host, Davion Ross, who is the co-founder and president of DD Sports. Um, and I think his product is Shot Tracker. But uh, welcome, Davian, and uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Thank you for having me. It's really a privilege to, to be here. Uh, my name is Davian Ross. Um, I'm originally from Trinidad and Tobago, and uh, I came to the U.S. back in 1996 on a basketball scholarship after playing for, um, you know, practicing with Trinidad national team. Um, didn't get to play any games because I came to the U.S., um, I studied uh, computer science and math uh, at, at Benedictine College, and you know I'm an entrepreneur. I uh, love sports, love tech, and uh, I'm just excited to be here. Um, this is really uh, exciting for me. Well, you you uh, you talked a little bit about your background. You came here. You got a uh, a computer science background, a degree. What? Tell us a little bit about how you ended up here as an entrepreneur, what you're working on now, what's your journey been like? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, my journey has been, uh, when I got out of college, I had some opportunities to either go play overseas, play pro, or I had an offer from Sprint and to do software engineering in Kansas City or Xerox in Rochester, New York. And, you know, it seems like, oh, go play basketball or go write code. You know, it, it's, you know, very, very interesting. Excuse me, very interesting dilemma. Um, and, and some people wonder what's wrong with me because I decided to go write code. Um, and the main reason was because Sprint offered to pay for my green card, just to be really honest with you. It was an opportunity to stay in the US. And um, you know, after doing you know, Sprint for several years, I was part of a, a startup consultancy, which I was a fourth employee, um, which later sold to a, um, to, a, to a public company. And I think that was probably you know, I had like all these entrepreneurial, you know, um, initiatives when I was younger and growing up in Trinidad. But, you know, when, when I went to the to Evergence, um, that was the first time that I actually saw someone start like a software related company and over five, four to five years take it to the point where it was acquired. And I was like, wow, I want that. That, 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 that looks like fun. Um, they, they made, you know, a pretty significant investor, investment. I was an early employee. And, you know, I wanted that full experience. Um, so after that, I, I went out and did a company by the name of Digital Sports Ventures, which was in the sports and tech space. Um, we actually, at one point, we'd be ranked, you know, it was like ESPN, Yahoo, and us in regards to syndicating college sports video. And then we um, sold that company. And I played golf for about a year, trying to work on my game, which was, which was a ton of fun. And, uh, and then started Shot Tracker with, with my co-founder. And so for those of you who don't know, Shot Tracker is a sensor-based technology that tracks statistics and analytics. Um, we're really heavy into product innovation because we're a first of our kind you know, type of technology. Um, with that comes a lot of advantages, but it comes a lot of challenges too because you're solving stuff that you know, people haven't solved. I mean, we've filed almost 28 patents of which 17 have been issued. So we're, we're really in the innovation space. And, you know, in my spare time, I do a little bit of angel investing, you know, mentoring entrepreneurs and, 
you know, also work on, you know, how do I work with companies like RGA, one of my partners who I partnered with and who's actually a shot tracker investor to somewhat bridge, you know, the wealth gap for, for, for underrepresented founders. Well, there's a, there's a lot to unpack there. Let's, let's I'm stay not busy on. At all. I'm not busy at all, Scott. Yeah, I was going to say, that's really going on. typical entrepreneur. The fact that you chose one of the most irritating sports on earth to spend a year chasing around a little white ball is truly the fascinating part. We'll have to have a separate conversation about that uh, endeavor. Um, but I, I want to talk a little bit more about Shot Tracker. So who are your customers now um, and and I, I certainly the 17 issued patents is really impressive because it's hard to it's hard to get one issued in any kind of reasonable time. Um, so talk a little bit about what's the technology, who's the customer, what's the business model? Absolutely. So the technology is called ultra wideband. Um, think about it as, you know, RTLS, indoor GPS. Um, with our technology, we're able to figure out the location of the player and ball within two to four centimeters. So if you think about like location technology from a, um, from, a, from a GPS perspective, you could be on one side of the building, somebody else is on the other side of the building, but it's sure that you're still at the same address, right? With, you know, the difference with our technology is like, we have to tell the difference between a two-pointer and a three-pointer, which is centimeters. And the other thing that we do is, so we have a sensor, we put a sensor on a player, it weighs about six grams, put a sensor in a ball and it senses around the rafters and we're able to track the location of the playing ball within that two to four centimeters. So we can tell when the ball goes in the hoop. We then have these machine learning algorithms that can tell you exactly what's going on. So we can tell you, hey, the touch time, you know, everything that will come in a box score. Um, we can tell you, you know, hey, your points per possession when you make two to five passes or three to four passes or when there's a paint touch. So we give you all of this analytics associated with it. Um, we have multiple customers. I, I like to call them constituents because, you know, in our model is, you know, we actually provide this technology to the, to the actual conferences and universities. We really focus in college. Um, in some places in the pros, we have more of a licensing model where they pay, you know, a software as a service. We call it stats as a service, a different, different definition of SaaS. Um, but, but our traditional model as we work with colleges is like we work with them, we provide the technology. Um, but then we have an exchange of value where they get access to the technology and we are able to commercialize the data. So we may integrate that data with a broadcaster, with anybody who wants access to sub-second latency data um, in real time. So, you know, we're able to capture our stuff, throw it to the cloud and back down in less than 100 milliseconds. A lot of times people are like, well, how much that is? Well, if you think about it, it takes you about 300 milliseconds just to blink, three to 400. So that kind of gives a, a perspective in regards to um, in regards to the speed of what we're doing. There. Traditionally, in our relationship, we, you know, our, our partners own the data, but we actually have this commercial right, exclusive commercial right, to 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 be able to to, to sell the data to all the partners. So from broadcasters, media, um, you know, college is a little sticky when it comes to like, you know, sports betting, but you know, at the pro level. I mean, sports betting folks, you know, want access to the data at the pro level, et cetera. So who, who owns the data itself? So you put one of these at a, at a college. Do you yeah. own the data? Do they own the data? Do they license yeah, the data? So we, we, we help to originate the data, but um, the, the, the schools and conferences actually own the data. 
Got it. Um, but, you know, as part of our partnership, we get the exclusive right to commercialize the data um, because we are bringing the technology that's helping to originate the data. And then there may be derivative products that we are able to make that we own that's part of, you know, using the raw materials of the data per se. So you're, the products that you sell can leverage the data or be based on the data, but they, they own and control the data itself. Yeah, that's correct. That's correct. So that's a, that's a hard problem to solve. There's, there's hardware, there's software, there's sales, there's all yeah. these things you have to go through. So the theme today is, is around kind of innovation on a budget, right? Like, yeah. Yeah. and you've had a, a series of experiences and it, and it put you in the position to, to create Shot Tracker. So talk a little bit about like, we're all, we all have limited resources almost regardless of even if you're apple you've got limited resources right it's not it's not infinity so how do you think about how do you think about approaching innovation and creating new products or services when you have those constraints yeah so there's there's a lot of constraints right that you have to think about and i will tell you that you know it's it's very different from you know like hardware and software right when you think about software hardware just doesn't compile as fast as software when you, when you think about it. So like hardware has a whole different level of complexities that, that we've had to work with, right? Because now you're looking at like prototyping, it takes four to six weeks before you could even figure out you had a problem. I mean, so hardware is like really painful. On the software side, I think that, you know, it's been, it's been, it's been fairly easy for, not easy, I should say, nothing's easy, but it's been fairly, um, we, we've been able to do a good job uh, on on just the innovating and 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 part of it is like we we try to really work closely with our customers in regards to innovation. So you know a lot of times what we'll do is we'll take you know something ideas even if in you know we try not to take wireframes because customers can't necessarily see the end result, but we'll take like you know visuals and then sit and work with them. Like so one of the things that you know I sat with Bill Self like hey Bill tell me about your process tell me about what you're doing and I think if you can actually have like constant integration with your customers, it, it gives you a, you know, the, 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 this, 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 the sharpest point between you know, the, the distance between two points is shortest when you go straight. Right. And that's not necessarily what entrepreneurship is, but if you can actually have the customer and work in hand in hand in the customer, I think it helps to drive innovation in a way that helps to, 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 to minimize some of the extra effort that you have to put or the extra costs associated with it. Um, the other thing that we do is we really try to fail fast. Um, so, you know, you have to have this approach of, you know, no stone unturned, but you have to fail stuff fast. So what we try to do is we try to break stuff as soon as we can, because what we don't want to do is go down a process where we're like iterating, iterating, iterating on something. And then it fails at the end. And we just lost, you know, 68 weeks and a bunch of money. So what we try to do is like when we have a problem to solve, we, we just go through an exercise of like, hey, what are the reasons that this won't work? Let's try to break it and, and, and fail that iterate fast, which I think helps with, you know, some of the cost and, 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 and somewhat innovating on a budget. Um, as I said before, hardware, you know, makes it a little bit tough, but sometimes we go through, we go down multiple paths. I mean, it may not be the most cost effective, but, you know, uh, someone always told me, right, you can either get it, you know, fast, cheap, <laughs> or good quality, right? You got to pick two. So sometimes, you know, we have to, you know, trade off that, that, that cheap to, 
to make sure that we, we're going faster. So depending on the equation of what we're trying to do, those are the, the drivers that we're thinking about um, to, to, to just be able to innovate around. So let's let's push on, we can push on a few pieces, but I wanna push on the, the, the failing piece and, and you hear fail fast, but I think what you, what you touched on was we're often as entrepreneurs looking for, looking for signals that validate our approach. Yeah. And what you've just highlighted is actually investing lots of energy, trying to invalidate parts of it. Like let's figure out why this isn't going to work and let's, let's prove that out. Like let's try to kill this thing. And why do you think that that's important? Look, I, th I think that's important. And, and just so you know, is that, um, you know, I don't think it's either or, right? And I think every situation is different. So this is not like Bible, hey, you should try to invalidate versus validate. I mean, most times we're looking for the, the, the least path of resistance and we're looking for, you know, most times, especially in hardware, we're looking for things that are, you know, non-negotiable that we need to make this happen. And if you can actually identify those things that are non-negotiable, then I think it's really important to go to the approach of invalidation because, you know, if this, so I'll give you a perfect example, right? Like, so, you know, I mean, behind me, you probably see this, I didn't mean for this, but this worked out really well. This is our rechargeable ball rack behind me to my left, right? Um, there were two companies that failed at this. Um, the difference in what you're seeing there versus like an iPhone is that one is inductive charging, which is, you know, it sits. Um, we have a sensor in the ball, so we need resonant charging. So imagine the device sitting here and it's hovering three to five inches over the charger and actually charging it, right? So we have a patent around this because there were two large companies, a large device manufacturer that failed at this and couldn't bring it to fruition and a large watch company that failed at it. Um, from our perspective, not only do we did we have incredible resources, but we knew the things that were not negotiable. Like we couldn't have, the reason we went down this path is because we couldn't have a ball that uses inductive charging to charge and it compromises the integrity of the ball. Like that was non-negotiable. So for us, we had to figure out and innovate around this ball needs to bounce and I need to use a shot track enabled ball and a regular ball and not be able to tell the difference. That was non-negotiable. So we tried, I mean, I'm talking about packing up the basketball, putting, stuff in there to figure out, can we really do this? And what are the limits? So I think that from our perspective, and just to give some context, the reason that that was important is because, you know, basketball lasts about 12 to 18 months. You know, some people wear it out even more. And like, for instance, for the NBA, they use a, a complete leather ball. So they want to play with the ball. The ball is better to them eight months down the road than the first month because it has to be broken in. It's almost like the perfect leather jacket. So we had to solve the problem to, to, to not only get that ball to work, but get it able to last. And basketballs have to be managed in weight, right? So we couldn't put a big battery on there to get it to last as long. I mean, right now we get about 14 to 20 hours, but we needed it to last the entire season. So you had to make it rechargeable. So from us, these non-negotiable things are things that we had to solve technically. Otherwise it doesn't matter how quick or how much we got it done. If it wasn't working, then that would be a big hurdle for us. So I think it really just depends on the situation on if you go with validation versus invalidation. From a technical perspective, if it didn't work, it didn't do us any good. So we had to take that route. 
Well, and you and you you just you blended them together. But one of the things I, I want to pull them apart, you had both customer objectives, which is yeah. what you outlined, right? The the ball has to last a certain amount of time. It has to be rechargeable in a way. You can't change the integrity of the ball. Those are all customer demands. And you also hinted at some of your own business objectives, which is how do you balance that? Like, that's all well and good, but you still have to figure out how you're going to make money. Yes, for sure. So so how do you, where, is the, where does that compromise or where does that trade-off come from? And how did you handle that side of it? Yeah, so from our perspective, as you can imagine, you know, manufacturing chips for basketball that lost, that, that lasts like 30 days is not a good answer because those chips are not cheap. So for us, when you talk about the business model, the only way to do it was to make it rechargeable. Because if you put like a primary cell in there, then you're just going to be rotating basketballs every two months and a basketball season, excuse me, lasts, you know, eight to nine months. So for us, that was that balancing act of, okay, what is the limit, least amount of time we could have a basketball? Well, practice runs three days. If they run a tournament, they're using the first the full basketball for the entire day. Okay, let's figure out how we can get creative to get like 14 to 20 hours out of there and, and be able to deliver. And, and that accomplishes multiple things, right? It's, it's easy for the end user. So they don't necessarily have to be like, hey, coach, time out. We got to go charge the ball. They don't have to do that because that's that's not going to fly because it's not natural to the experience. And additionally, we don't have to be flipping new balls in every month or two. Um, and, and it allows us because that's expensive for us. And we'd have to put that cost onto the customer, which would really break the business model if, you know, they needed five different sets of balls every year. And, and most times in college, people don't notice, but they literally practice with the balls that they're going to play in the game. So if you're KU your Wilson team, if you're going to play against Texas, they play with a Nike ball. So two days before you go play them, you're, you're practicing with a Nike ball. So what that means is that every college has five to six different ball racks, depending on who they're going to play. Now you multiply that versus, hey, our balls need to be switched out every month. That's, that breaks the business model all day. So that's some of the balance snack stuff to, to the point what you're asking, Scott. So when you, when you talk about the... Part of the part of it is is focusing on the critical path. What what are the things that are non-negotiable, right? And then and those are the things for the customer. And then there's the things for your business. Are there are there iteration points, uh, you know, with the, the customer? You talked about partnering with them and innovating with them. How do you separate out the the customers' fantasies from what their real problems are? Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's like a legit, legit problem that, you know, startups have. Right. And I mean, a long time ago, I remember I was using a, a, a solution when I was doing more software related stuff called get satisfaction. Right. And what they did was they would actually, you know, drive their product roadmap from customers being able to vote up different projects. So that's, that's essentially what we've done. Right. When we start with, with coach self and we started talking to coaches like Damian, I want to see, ball reversals. I want to see all these things. We documented it. And, you know, we actually picked up the phone and called another 50 to 60 coaches. And the things that drove our product roadmap was the things that rolled to the top. Oh, wow. All of the 50, 60 coaches, 43 of them said they wanted ball reversals. So that's at the top. Hey, well, this one thing that coach self wanted was, you know, he was the only one. So we're going to have to move that down the list. 
So, I mean, part of it is like working intimately with your customers to really understand what their needs are and validating customer versus customer, because you're exactly right. There's going to be a group of customer that, I mean, their role as customers to really think about how do I streamline this process for me? And you're going to have to take a third party approach of understanding all the inputs and having that drive your product roadmap, because you could go down, you know, a, 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 a rabbit hole in a situation where you just got, you know, they're giving you all these different requirements, but it only applies to them. So we try to really find that balance between understanding multiple customers and going from there. So how do you, when you're first starting out, we have a lot of, of early stage um, startups. We have some small, small business owners. Um, we have people who are considering quitting their day jobs and, and, and turning their side hustle into, into a job. When you're first starting out, you don't really have a customer. You might have a prospect yeah. or you might have somebody that you fantasize or think about being a customer. Like you got this great idea to track this stuff, you know, on a basketball court. How did you find out initially that anybody cared at all? Like, what was the, what was that first conversation? How do you get that first insight or customer discovery work done where you can sort of talk to the prospect and say, does any coach actually care about any of this stuff? Well, I think, I think part of it actually starts with you um, as the individual. So for me, I think that as an entrepreneur, if you're going to solve a problem, there's a certain level of domain expertise that you should have in regards to what's, you know, what, what the problem you're trying to solve and what the environment looks like, right? So, you know, you don't see me going to solve, you know, things in lacrosse, right? Because I couldn't have a, I don't have a clue, you know, what's going on in that market or, um, you don't see me trying to solve stuff as it relates to HR because that's just not my expertise. But, you know, I hooped in college. I got a computer science degree. I understand. I've, I've worked with coaches. I've had coaches. So I think it, part of it starts with the individual and part of it starts in research, right? Like before you talk to a customer, I think you can get enough information so that you can formulate what you want to do, how you want to do it, so that when you do take it to a customer, you're not starting from a blank piece of paper. You're actually starting for something that, you know, is of substance. And I think customers are not going to like give you the full solution. But what my hope is that customers can do is help drive you into solving the problem in a way that's beneficial to them. And, and so that's how I use customers. A lot of times, you know, if we depending on customers, we, we'd have been having, you know, we'd still be actually riding horses. Right. We probably wouldn't have, you know, had cars. Right. Because somebody had to envision that, oh, there's a better way. So I think it's the customer is really important. But I think that there's a balance in you as the entrepreneur, really understanding the market, the dynamics and use the customer input to fine tune it. But you got to start somewhere. So there's the resources you as an individual bring. There's engaging with your customers. You have been working with RGA. Um, as another, as a kind of a partner in that creation of innovation and or you know, driving innovation and, and creating new products and services. And, and so I want to start with just explain a little about what RGA is and how you've worked with them. And then I want to talk a little bit about some of the work that you've been doing around the kind of underrepresented founders. Absolutely. So, um, you know, it started off probably about six years ago when I was part of the Dodgers Venture Studio at Shot Tracker, and RG actually invested in our company. And as we went through that process, we, um, you know, they actually facilitated for us to do the first ever basketball game with Fox and Intel as partners, you know, paid pilot. 
um, as we were going through our relationship with Nike, they helped to really foster that relationship and, you know, made some introductions. Just now we just raised some capital for Verizon. They facilitated that intro. So I've had a long history with them. And, you know, when, when, when everything was happening in the last 12, 12 to 18 months in, in our world, and um, it was one of those things where um, we just felt um, RGA reached out and said, hey, what can we do? And the thought process was like, they had this idea for like a venture studio. Um, I said, well, you know, I'd love to help with it because it's something I'm passionate about, how to, um, how to really help underrepresented founders. And my communication was, hey, they have three components, right? So they have creative capital, which is where they take RGA resources that work on large projects and make them available to startups. Um, and they select people. So it's not everybody. There's a select few. They also do investment capital. But, you know, they have all these relationships also and relationship capital. So one of the things that we talked about is how do we do what they did for me and democratize access to RGA's customers? If you don't know, RGA has, you know, the, the biggest customers, you know, all Fortune 1000 customers that they work for. Like, you know their work. If you're a sneakerhead, they help bring the sneakers app to market. Um, they've, they've done stuff to help bring Beats to market. They helped launch Nike ID. I mean, they've done like some really incredible work. And so I'm partnering with them to somewhat democratize that access and, you know, make it available to, 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 to black founders and underrepresented founders to, to really help build that, 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 that build that bridge, that wealth gap. Sorry. So how does, if somebody was interested in engaging with RGA in that way, how would you go about connecting? Absolutely. With yeah. So easily they can go to coalitionventurestudios.com and, um, you know, there's a startup page on there. Uh, you click the startup page and you sign up. They will ask you a bunch of information at your company. Um, um, we, we don't call it a, excuse me, an application. We call it a registration process because the goal is, you know, as many companies could sign up. Um, when we go through that process of, you know, they, they go through the process of vetting the companies, making sure that they meet the criteria, you know, really underrepresented, um, understand where they are in the life cycle, you know, whether it's C through series B. Um, and what they do is they, they're able to um, vet the companies and then they start trying to find ways to drive collisions in regards to how those companies can work with you know, RGA customers. And it's, it's perfect. It's everybody wins, you know, startups get access to, you know, paid projects, paid pilots, referenceable clients. Um, some of these clients who have, you know, a lot of these corporations have made decisions that, hey, they want to do something. This gives them an opportunity to really diversify their supply chain. And then, you know, RGA is, is the connector of, of, of these startups and, um, and, 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 and these corporations. So it's, it's easy to start up registering and, you know, they'll start driving some collisions for you. And uh, hopefully, hopefully we're able to find ways that we can interject startups into, um, you know, what, what RJ is doing with all of their customers. That's awesome. Well, thanks. We, we posted a link and we'll, we'll include it in the notes for the podcast as well. You, you talked about sort of three kinds of capital and, and, and while I appreciate RGA's view of how they can bring that, I think every founder needs to be actively pursuing them, right? We talk a little bit about investment capital. And so when people talk about raising capital, but the, the first two actually are often the leader lead to the investment capital, which is what I think of as relationship capital. What's the network of relationships you have around you? And then 
what's the creative capital? Who are the kinds of problem solvers or engagement that you can get from people that can contribute to your thinking? And they're almost a subset of that relationship piece. So if you can go back a little bit in your way back machine to starting the company, what were what were some of the strategies that you used to create some of those early relationships around you? You talked about being a domain expert in, in your case in basketball and technology, but you had to have had a set of relationships you've been cultivating for a while. And so how do you think about investing in those yourself and, and, and how did you do it then? And, and how do you, how do you think about it now? Yeah. You know, re- relationships are, are interesting because I've been very fortunate um, to build some, you know, really, really good relationships. And um, I, 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 I think I don't always go into relationships thinking, how can they help me? Um, I, I tend to go into relationships, how can I be a resource, right? Because I think that, I mean, everything going on in the world, it's, it's, it takes a village, you know, and, and a perfect example of that was, you know, I was actually volunteering my time to be a mentor at Techstars. I mean, I still do. I still lead off most of their founder talks with their different cohorts, et cetera. Um, so I've, I've gone through that process of, you know, I was, I was a mentor and, you know, that wasn't necessarily for me. That was like to help, you know, really bridge the gap, share what I've learned because I don't know everything, but hey, if I made these mistakes, you should definitely understand them so that you don't make them also. And it's funny because you know, I was raising capital and then I started to the tech stars folks and they're like, hey, we want to make an introduction to you to Greycroft. And then I get on the phone and I talk to Greycroft. I tell them what they're doing. And, you know, the guy said, uh, hey, we want you to talk to David. And I was like, David, who? He's like David Stern, our intern. And I'm like, David Stern, the, the, the late David Stern, I should say, may he rest in peace, um, the former commissioner of the NBA. They're like, yeah. And they sent an intro and you know, next thing you know, I'm on the phone with David Stern. Um, David's David style is, you know, once he gets to know you, he tries to punch you in the mouth the first thing to see how you react. So, of course, he just started firing bullets at me. At the end, you know, there was this awkward silence. And he was like, I like you. You should come see me in New York. The next week I'm in New York. And, man, we got really close. We built, like, an incredible friendship. So, I mean, my point of that story is that he played, like, a really critical role in democratizing access and making things available for us. But I didn't necessarily go into the relationship that was built around how I got really close with David, you know, actually wanting something. I was actually volunteering my time, which led to a network relationship, which led to an introduction. And here I am, 11 o'clock at night, having a full text conversations with David Stern and talking to him probably three to five times a week for the last few years. So my, my point is, is that like, as you build relationships, we should really be thinking about how can we help each other? And, you know, I will tell you that comes full circle um, because if you can actually, you know, help people and, and make an effort, like I do these things because I hope that what I've learned, there's some nugget that somebody can take from this that makes them better and that they can take to help somebody else. Because I'll tell you, I'm a full example of it coming full circle. That's huge. And, and, and your point about it starting with an investment that you were making in other people, right? You were providing them with value. You were. Yeah, I got to- nothing out of being a mentor, you know. Well, you, know, you did. Like, it, it is time consuming. Yeah. Let me tell you, you know, but it's that's what it's about. Right. Like 
hey, I know these couple things that like, if I can get you further along the path, you know, because you don't make the same mistakes I make, then that's that's a road W, you know? Yeah, that's like it's huge. And you take, to your point, you're taking the time to invest, which is something that I talk to a lot of, oh, I'm so heads down, I'm so busy. I'm like, you've got to carve off time to invest in those relationships because the you don't know where you don't know where the opportunities are going to come from and so you got to have to at least be investing on a regular basis to be able to say i got to be contributing out here because you can't predict it uh, and it, look i i'm not going to tell you that it's not time consuming and it's not taxing especially when you're i mean it's to the point where sometimes you got to be like yo enough's enough right like you got to find that balance but i think it's really important to you know to just pay it forward especially like you know, especially as a minority, like if you like, you know, with everything that's going on as a minority, if you get a seat at the table, like you have to find a way to like look back and figure out how do I pull some other people up? How do I put some other people on, you know, um, because you're fortunate, like the amount of capital that I've raised is more of an exception versus a rule. I mean, when you look at the statistics in regards to like, you know, black founders and, and what they've raised in the grand scheme of things. So for me, I feel like, you know, we have a responsibility. Everybody has a responsibility, you know, to, to be able to, I mean, this is the reason why you're doing this. Hopefully somebody hears this and they think about things a little bit differently. Well, that's, you're absolutely right. And, and I think, yes, it's, it, yes, it's important for women and people of color who get into that position, but I actually think it's, it's even more important for people who look more like me to be paying attention about creating that those those opportunities to open those doors up and Absolutely. to create the, those kinds of relationships. And I, I've been fortunate over the last, really consistently over the last decade from, from being a part of leading Startup America, where I got to meet a much wider set of entrepreneurs across the country. And that was the that was the consistent ask was just just give us a shot, right? Let it, and sometimes it was driven by geography. You, you talked about, you know, your early opportunities to go be in Kansas City or Rochester, New York. Well, those aren't hotbeds of software development or, you know, the internet market, right? Like that, and and yet there's brilliant people in those places. And, 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 and if you just stack on, you're a, you know, you're a, a, a black woman in, Congratulations! You've now you've got a whole set of challenges that that I don't have. So if I can just open up a door, that's a big opportunity. And so it's um, it's just important to remember it goes both ways. Yeah, no, it takes a village, and like you know, you know, people of color just you know we we all need allies, and it's it's going to take the entire village for us to work together to make this stuff happen. So um, it's it's so great to hear you you know position it in that manner because I couldn't agree more. And it's um, the, the I think the thing that's most um, I don't know whether it's challenging, disappointing or exciting is that it's not that hard to do. Right. It's not a big lift to say, I, I want to introduce you to this person that I met. They've got this thing that I think you'd, you'd be interested in. Like, yeah, I think part of it is is also like you have to you, know, you have to acknowledge that there's a problem. And I think a lot of people are probably it's not their reality. So they don't have an appreciation for the problem and therefore they don't necessarily make the effort to, you know, to, to break that barrier. And, you know, that's, that's just, that's just the reality, right? So the more people who can acknowledge that, yo, this is a problem and I can help, and it doesn't take that much, 
then, you know, the better we are. Absolutely. All right. I got two more questions for you. One is selfish. So I would like more people to travel for business because that's the business we're in. So tell us about your plans around business travel over the next six months to a year. What's uh, Have you been on a trip, business trip recently? And do you have any that you're planning? How are you thinking about it? Yeah. So I was on a business trip um, in, I want to say in March, I made like a two day trip. And it was literally like the day after I got my second vaccine. Not that it did anything, but you know, it was almost just like a mental relief, you know? Um, so I'm definitely planning to travel. Um, I, I tell you what, um, there's a lot of appreciation for being home. I have seven-year-old twins and they are probably more active than, you know, their, their schedules are busier than mine. And I really love that part of life. And I really enjoy doing life with them. And um, it's helpful for my wife to have me around um, because it's a lot of work and she's a, she's got an incredible career also. So it's literally, you know, teamwork makes the dream work. So I'm, I'm trying to, I, my trips are going to be, I've always liked the two day trips so that I could tuck them in at night. I'll leave early in the morning, come back the next night. So I try to pack my trips in as much as possible. And I will tell you that I'm doing more on zoom now, just because like the whole society is, you know, they, they've embraced it a little more, but I'm, I'm, you know, I used to be that guy, but by April, I have a companion pass on Southwest and it's like the extreme now I'm, 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 I'm traveling and I want to travel, but you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be like, does it really make sense for me to be there? Can I do it online? So I'm trying to be smart about it. Um, Cause it is an opportunity to kind of dig in with the fam. I'm probably more excited on my, a little vacation I have planned with the family because I haven't been on vacation in a couple of years. So I'm actually more looking forward to that more than anything. Yeah, I, I, uh, I hear you there. It's funny when I, when I speak to a lot of entrepreneurs over the last 25 years that they didn't need a pandemic to, to be told that they hadn't taken a vacation in two years or three years. So it's kind of, it's always, it's funny. It's like, I don't know. I just, I've been home instead of being on the road. Um, well, this is awesome. Uh, we had some questions about what are things that that our audience, uh, the Founders Focus crew, could do for you. What 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 are ways that we could help? Um, fair. Well, so first and foremost, um, pay it forward. You know, if you get the opportunity to 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 help, you know, uh, it doesn't even have to be a founder of color. Just founders and entrepreneurs in general. Um, entrepreneurship is hard, so if you could make an introduction make their life easier, you know, try to do so. Um, you know, for me personally, um, you know, I, it's more about the founders. Like if, if you can, if you see somebody who could benefit from coalition, um, tell them about it. Um, you know, I think that it, it could be really helpful to, to a large subset of people and I'm working hard and the RGA team is incredible to work with. They just have a, um, just a great disposition in regards to what's going on and understanding their impact that they could be allies, et cetera. So I'm really excited about that. So I would say tell a, tell an entrepreneur, a person of color about, about, um, you know, about, about, about coalition venture studios. So hopefully, you know, we can actually help them out in some aspects. So th those are, those are the things that I would ask. That's awesome. Well, thank you for so much for being here today. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Founders Focus. We love getting feedback. So if you've got a topic for us that you want us to discuss, or you've got a founder you want to hear from, hit me up on LinkedIn at T. Scott Case, or you can always grab one-on-one -on -one time with me at foundersfocus.com. Stay awesome.